morning. We have two Bible readings today, one from Psalm 2, verses 1 to 12, and the other from Matthew 16, verses 1 to 28. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the next reading is from Matthew 16, verses 1 to 28. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking about among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, 
and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some people are saying that um, the pandemic is soon going to lead to a mass exodus of people resigning from their jobs. The logic goes that um, the stress of COVID has caused many of us to reassess our lives and, and what we're working towards. And so as COVID starts to you know, wind back and be less of a dominant force, um, people are going to start to put into effect the plans that they've already made to change those priorities and particularly to change the work that we do. It'll be interesting to see if this actually happens, if this theory is correct. And I'll be particularly interested to see if it's not just work priorities that shift in us as a culture, but if other priorities in our lives change as well. A lot of people, more over on the East Coast, but a lot of people have had a whole heap of time to sit at home and dream about what they wish their lives could be without COVID. So it'll be interesting to see if if life just goes back to normal or if priorities really do shift. Another way of of looking at this is is to ask ourselves, what do we treat as most important in our lives? Not simply what do we think should be the most important, but what do we actually treat as most important? As a a culture, uh, priorities vary for us, but for a lot of people it, it goes something like this. Number one is family. Number two is quality of life, things like fun, health, exercise, food, those kind of things. Number three is work. Um, That's what many of us think should be the order. But what we actually treat as most important probably doesn't match up with that as much as we'd like. Um, And that's what COVID has really shown for many of us. For many of us, work ends up getting a lot of our time a lot of our energy, a lot of our emotional reserves, and these days it feels more and more like it just invades home life so that things like family and quality of life get pushed more and more to the edges. For Christians, we've got a different priority list. If you're not a follower of Jesus here, you might have noticed this about us, or at least noticed uh, that we talk like we should have a different priority list. You might have noticed that in practice, we don't always live up to that as well. But, but this is what Christians usually think should be the order. Number one is God. Number two is family, including church family. 
Number three is work, and number four is, is quality of life, you know, life, uh, health, fun, exercise, food, all that kind of stuff. And maybe we'd debate about whether three and four should be in that order, but at least on paper we think that God's priorities should come first, and then we can move on to our other priorities. But that's not really the way that things work in God's eyes. Because a priority list like this means it's very easy to approach it. First, we need to get God's priorities out of the way so that then we can move on to our priorities. But the way that God sees it is that his priorities, they, they move down the list with us. They, they refuse to stay in point one. The way God sees it is not so much a list... What he sees it is all our other priorities are, are brought into orbit around him. Now, do you see the difference between an idea like that and a list? He's not the first priority in a long list. Everything turns on him. Everything is impacted by him. Everything is for him. He's like the sun and every other sphere of our life is affected and shaped by him. Now, that's actually a pretty radical way of seeing the world. What does your family life look like? Well, God determines that. What does your church family life look like? Well, God determines that. What does work look like? What does your quality of life look like? Well, there's no sphere of our lives over which God doesn't hold complete sway. Now, this is such a, a radical mind shift that we can struggle to get it right. And this was actually something that the first followers of Jesus really struggled to get right. To get this right, you've got to see the magnitude of Jesus. And in this chapter of the Bible that we're looking at today, Jesus warns his followers that that focusing on mere human priorities can easily eclipse the magnitude of Jesus and his priorities for us. And it's actually really easy to miss that that's even what's going on. This is the first thing we see today. We risk missing the magnitude of Jesus if our focus is on mere human priorities. Let's have a look at how this unfolds. Look again with me at verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, uh, came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, this is a bit of an unholy alliance, these two, Pharisees and Sadducees. It's a little bit like a tobacco company working with the AMA, the Australian Medical Association. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're they're so different in their teachings that it's, it's almost a bit ridiculous that they're united in their opposition to Jesus. The Pharisees, they don't think the Sadducees passed the test. The Sadducees don't think the Pharisees passed the test, but there they are together putting Jesus to the test, asking him for a sign from heaven. But they're hardly genuine, as as you can tell, just by their alliance. And so Jesus doesn't hesitate to call them out. In verse 3, he says, You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. These people, they they can read the weather, but they can't read the obvious signs about Jesus. And it's not because they're just, you know, a little bit clueless or something like that. 
really they don't want to see the truth about Jesus. And with people like that, people who are not genuine, Jesus doesn't have time for them. He just leaves them. Now, Jesus' response here is quite confronting. But can you understand why Jesus calls them wicked and adulterous just for asking for a sign? It's because their own interests and and priorities are blocking them from seeing what's right in front of them. If they hadn't just marched up to Jesus demanding that their checklist be met then and there, demanding a sign, what would they have heard? Well, if they just stopped and listened, they would have heard literally the buzz of the crowds, of the people, full of the stories of the incredible signs that Jesus has just done just hours before. Just hours before, Jesus had fed a crowd of people miraculously for the second time. 5,000 men in the first crowd and in this latest time, 4,000 men, probably 25,000 people or more, all talking about the signs that Jesus had just done. Surely that was more than enough of a sign for them. But they refused to see it. They're holding their own interests, their own priorities so close up to their eyes that they can't see past them to the clear truth about Jesus. It's like the moon can eclipse the sun, even though the moon is actually tiny compared to the sun. It's not not bright at all and yet it can eclipse the magnificence of the sun. Or like even a plate held up in front of your face can eclipse the sun. Or even a 50-cent piece, if if you hold it up to your eye, you you can eclipse the sun. Like that, they're eclipsing the the Son of God with, with their small concerns. They're missing the sheer magnitude of Jesus because they just don't want to see it. And yes, that's wrong. It's wicked. Have you noticed that it, it's, never, it's never for lack of signs that people won't believe in Jesus? Not back then and not even today. The signs are there. The problem is that we want Jesus to tick off our checklist, our interests, our priorities, instead of paying attention to what he's already clearly shown. But that's not how things work. You know, if, I, if I'm pulled over by a police officer and, and, and he wants to breathalyze me, I can't say, you know, I can't say to him, I don't care that you're wearing a uniform. I don't care that you're showing me your badge. I want different proof. Pull out that gun. Let's see that you know how to use it. Shoot that bird over there. Get Grant Stevens on the phone for me. Then I'll believe you. See, if you act like that, you're going to end up in the police van. You don't get to dictate the signs in that sort of thing. And it's the same with God. We don't get to dictate the signs. They're already given to us. It's never for lack of signs that people don't believe. But like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, we too have got a remarkable ability to close our eyes to the clear signs of God all around us. Sometimes we see the universe and we can think, somehow it just is. It must have always existed without beginning or without end. Or we can see the the beauty and and the complexity of of living things and, and we can think somehow they must have just arranged themselves without design, without input from a creator or we sense the reality of good and evil the weight of our consciences and yet we can think somehow 
it's just social conditioning. Right and wrong in the end, it's just whatever I decide it to be. Or we can hear the words of Jesus, unlike any other religious leader ever, unlike any other human ever, with such power and authority and yet with such compassion and insight. And we can think somehow they're just the work of a religious imagination made up by somebody. Or we can see the evidence for the resurrection, you know, the transformation of weak, scared disciples to people willing to die for what they claim to have seen with their own eyes. We can see Judaism turned upside down, the explosion of the church into existence despite persecution. We can see all that. And then we can say, but I want to see a sign. But get this, you'll never see Jesus' magnitude by demanding a sign. It's, it's logically impossible. Because while ever we tell Jesus how he should prove his worth to us, we actually demean his magnitude. We undermine his magnitude by expecting that he should perform for us. We diminish him by refusing to see the signs that he's already clearly and powerfully given to us all around us. It's never for lack of signs that we don't believe Jesus' magnitude. It's always because our focus is on mere human priorities and we eclipse Jesus with them. And like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, that's not reasonable. It's inexcusable. And yet what we see next in this passage is actually, it's a danger for every single one of us, a danger for all of us. Have a look at what happens. As they travel away, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, they travel away from them to the other side of the lake. The disciples, they realize that they've forgotten to bring bread. Maybe they left in a hurry from this interaction. But the disciples, their priority is on lunch. But Jesus, he wants to shift their priority to, to something else. He wants them to be aware of, of a danger that they face. And so look at verse 6. He says, be careful. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Like yeast, there's something about the Pharisees and Sadducees that threatens to kind of infiltrate the the hearts and the minds of Jesus' own followers and grow there. So what is this yeast? Well, Jesus tells us, well, we're told, sorry, in verse 12, that it's the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But even that's a little bit hard to figure out what's meant by that because, like I said before, the Pharisees and Sadducees are actually so different in their teaching. They have in common that they want to get Jesus out of the way, but is that really what Jesus is warning his followers against? We we see more clearly what the yeast is as we see its influence at work even there in the boat. See, the disciples, they completely miss the warning here because they, they, they just can't get out of their mind lunch, bread. And so they think even Jesus is upset with them because they've forgotten lunch. It's like they think that the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is forgetfulness or something. And then Jesus actually says to them, in a way, their problem is actually forgetfulness. But not that they've forgotten bread, but because they so quickly forget the meaning of the signs that they've just seen. They so quickly forget what the signs point to. Have a look at verse 9. Jesus says, Don't you remember... The five loaves for the 5,000 
and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Jesus, he's saying to them here that the feeding miracles show something extremely obvious. It's not simply that Jesus can provide lunch whenever they need it. That's true enough. But Jesus' point is that these miracles show his magnitude, his significance. And they show overwhelmingly, abundantly, abundantly, excessively. And yet the Pharisees and the Sadducees have refused to see the obvious because they're blinded by their own priorities. This is the yeast that Jesus is warning them about. They too are at risk of putting human priorities above God's priorities so that they end up missing the the sheer magnitude of Jesus because they're focusing on other things. And do you feel the, the weight of that warning here? Do you sense how easy it is to eclipse his magnitude because of other things that, that you hold up in your life uh, that feel more pressing, more urgent, more important, a greater priority? It doesn't even have to be momentous things that take our eyes off Jesus. There in that moment, there in the boat, the disciples are so focused on forgetting bread that they're eclipsing the very bread of life who's come down from heaven. And it's not just in that moment. Last week we saw the disciples doing the same thing. The disciples are struggling. They're struggling to hold in front of their eyes the magnitude of Jesus. They're struggling to understand exactly who he is and and to keep that clear. But at this point, Jesus brings to the surface the question of exactly who he is, this question. He brings it front and center. He says to them in verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? And then after hearing some of the inadequate responses from people, he says in verse 15, but what about you? Who do you say I am? So much as we've been going through Matthew's gospel this year, so much has been building to this moment. And Peter, speaking on behalf of the other disciples, like he often does, he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, we've, we've known this all along. From the very first verse in Matthew, it's told us this. But finally, they see it. Peter finally sees that Jesus is the King who's bringing God's eternal kingdom to this world. And Jesus He says that figuring this out is not a small thing. In fact, it's not even something that someone could do on their own. It it takes God revealing it. Look at how Jesus reacts in verse 17. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And seeing this properly is not like an important bit of information that you file away. Jesus says knowing his identity changes their identity. Suddenly, they're caught up in, into the orbit of who he is and, and seeing who he is changes them. And this is our second point. Seeing the magnitude of Jesus changes our priorities. And Look at how it happens, how it changes Simon Peter. Verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter. Before this, he was called Simon. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter's name here gets changed from Simon to Peter, which which means rock. 
This is like Jesus saying, you know, from this moment on, I'm going to nickname you Rocky because I'm going to build my church on this rock. And then Jesus says to him in verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And it's a little bit hard to know exactly what Jesus means by this this statement. Um, And we could get tripped up thinking that this is somehow really all about Peter, as if, you know, the weight of the church somehow rests on Peter's shoulders. But that's to miss the point, because Jesus says here, he will build his church. The idea that that Jesus is getting at here is that he's going to build his church, build his kingdom, as people like Peter see who he really is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus will build his kingdom as people like Peter lead a mission to take the gospel message to the world. So Peter figures out Jesus' identity and as a result, his own identity is transformed and and caught up into Jesus' plan to build his kingdom, his church, through Peter, through the apostles, through all the people that they reach for Jesus, all the way down to us. And it all sounds great at that point. sounds so positive. But as we've already seen, there's a real danger that we will eclipse Jesus with our own priorities. And now we see that we'll even try and distort who Jesus is and distort what we think his kingdom should be like to line up with our human priorities. That's exactly what we see Peter, the rock, do next. Have a look, verse 21. Did you notice that as soon as they figure out who Jesus is, from that time on, Jesus starts to tell them exactly what that means. So in verse 21, he said, we read, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus is teaching them, this is how they're to understand the Messiah. He really is the all-powerful king who's going to build God's kingdom. But he's going to do that by first walking a path of pain, suffering and humiliation. But that's not at all what Peter had in mind when he identified Jesus as the Messiah. And so Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. He says in verse 22, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then look at what Jesus says to him in verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter goes from being a rock on which Jesus is going to build his church to being a stumbling block trying to trip Jesus up. And why? Well, it's because Peter has in mind mere human concerns, human priorities. He pictures a glorious Messiah who conquers without suffering, who marches on to victory with a a glorious entourage, with Peter, the mighty rock, at his right-hand side. But Jesus here calls for a very different kind of entourage. He calls Peter to embark on on a different kind of march to a different kind of end. And what's confronting is he's not just talking to Peter. Have a look at verse 24. Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross 
and follow me. Jesus says to Peter, not only are you wrong about me, Peter, not only am I going to die, but guess what? So are you. And then he says to whoever would consider following him, not only am I going to die, but guess what? So are you. And this brings us to our final point. Seeing the magnitude of Jesus means giving up the magnitude of self. Seeing the magnitude of Jesus clearly means giving up the magnitude of self completely. Following Jesus means we die to living for ourselves. It means we would follow Jesus even to our literal death if that's where he takes us. But whether we live or we die, we live now not for ourselves, we live entirely for Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Is that, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that what you realized you signed up for? Because Jesus has always been clear about this. We surrender our lives to him completely. Now, to some of us, the idea of handing over our lives completely to someone else sounds terrifying. To follow someone wherever they choose to lead us, even, even to death, sounds crazy. But for those of us who've seen the magnitude of Jesus, who've seen it clearly, we see it differently. We see that Jesus is overwhelmingly capable of leading us where no one, absolutely no one else can, not even ourselves. We see the, the goal of where he's taking us, which cannot be reached any other way. See, look at what Jesus says in verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jim Elliot was a, uh, a missionary who once wrote about this verse in his journal. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Following Jesus, it really is radical, but it's not foolish. So many people, all people actually, all people are looking for life in this world. Some, many really, are looking for it in a place that they're never going to find it. Now, our priorities so easily can become what we can get out of the present. You know, how we can extract as much life as we can get out of right now. But at the same time, most people sense just how ineffective we are in that, just how hopeless we are at succeeding at that. We feel alive, we just start to enjoy life, and, and then somehow it seems to elude us. It's like it slips through our fingers. So that then we feel adrift, and we look to the next big thing to somehow try and gain life back again. The next job, the next relationship, the next purchase, the next renovation, the next holiday. But living according to our priorities like this is actually a futile quest for life. Jesus even warns us in verse 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Life is found in Jesus Life is about Jesus. Looking for life in, in other places, it's not only futile in this life, but in the long run, we will lose our life. It will cost us our soul. 
And there's no doubt whatsoever that the Christian life is radical. But it's not foolish. And it's actually liberating. You know, instead of trying to desperately extract the most out of life and each moment now, because that's all we've got, instead of being focused on self-fulfillment, self-gain, self-centered living, we are focused on Jesus. We are focused on living for Him. And He leads us to live for others. This chapter, it's, it's a powerful warning not to let human priorities eclipse the magnitude of Jesus. We need to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We need to watch out that we don't make the same mistake as Peter and try and distort Jesus and his kingdom to line up with our priorities. So let me finish by asking, how are you going to take on board this warning, Jesus' warning to you here? What threatens to eclipse the the magnitude of Jesus in your life right now? What feels more pressing, more urgent, more demanding or more satisfying, more real? In all our decisions, in all our relationships and responsibilities, in all aspects of our lives, we need to remind ourselves of what Jesus is saying to us here. Saying the cross comes before the crown. He's saying suffering comes before glory. And he's saying service comes before celebration. In all our decisions, all our relationships, all our responsibilities, cross before the crown. Suffering before glory. Service before celebration. Are you taking up your cross in following Jesus? Dying to your own desires? Are you suffering for following Jesus, not taking the easy road, but the right road? Are you serving in following Jesus, not working for your dreams and desires, but working to build his kingdom his way? You know, if I'm going to buy a house, am I thinking, how will this help me live entirely for Jesus? If I'm bringing up my kids, how am I daily, moment by moment thinking, How do I serve Jesus as I serve them? If I'm taking a job, how am I thinking, how will this help me to live for Jesus? If I'm starting a relationship with someone, how am I thinking, how can I die to self and live for Jesus in this? The person we marry, where we live, how we spend our money, what we say to our friends who don't know Jesus, how we express our sexuality, how we spend our time in everything we've already decided We're dead to ourselves, dead to what we want, and fully alive forever in Jesus. Cross before crowned, suffering before glory, service before celebration. Let's pray that God would help us in this. Father, it is such a radical calling that you have given us in Jesus, and yet it is a joyful one. It is one of peace and life. Lord, in surrendering our lives, which we couldn't keep anyway, in Jesus we gain life forever. Help us to see just how amazing that is as we see fully how amazing Jesus, our Lord and Saviour is. Help us to see that he doesn't lead us anywhere that he himself has not gone, that he goes before us, ahead of us to the cross, and that in surrendering our life to him, we actually gain life 
for all eternity. We are liberated from living for self to live for you, to live in a world restored without suffering or evil for all eternity. Lord, help us to see that that is not a foolish exchange, but one worth making and one that affects us every moment, every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.